Today's reading comes from the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. This, of course, is the Transfiguration. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Indeed. You may be seated. Friends, uh, apologies for the uh, missed transitions a few times there. Uh, it is so good for me to get to be with you all. Uh, I intentionally was outside because I wanted to see everyone's face and I wanted to meet everyone's names or learn everyone's names in case I didn't already. And Pavel, that was absolutely amazing, friend. You were just incredible. We cannot say thank you enough. Mm -hmm. So friends, today is Transfiguration Sunday. It's one of the high feasts on the Christian calendar, and it happens just before the greatest fast on the Christian calendar. Lent begins this Wednesday. And Transfiguration, a lot like, you know, Christmas Eve and Easter Sunday, is a passage you already know. And that presents a challenge for preachers, right? Because we like to say something new and <laughs> memorable. And there's not much to say new about the Transfiguration that hasn't already been said. So my strategy today is I did put some fill-in-the-blanks in the bulletin. And, and if you want to fill those in, great. If you don't, I realize that's the first time that this has happened here. So I want, I want you to know that those are there to help you if you want them. But don't feel like this is school and, and you don't, you know, like if you just need to relax a little bit, that's fine too. I, I've done these in a couple of different churches and some folks really love them and some folks don't. And if you don't, that's fine. Don't fill them out. So what I want to do though is I want to tell you three things about the transfiguration that you already know. And then I want to add a fourth thing that you also already know. So that's the, the strategy for you today. I hope at some point that what we land on is a recognition that uh, the transfiguration was an exceedingly important point in the story of Jesus with his apostles and I would argue for our sake as well. So the first thing to be said obviously about the transfiguration is that it connects 
the law and the prophets to Jesus. So the first blank is law and prophets. And, and we see there Moses and Elijah. And I would argue that all three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, intentionally do their best to connect Jesus to the fulfillment of the covenants that happened in the Old Testament. So here we have the Mosaic covenant, which is the law, right? That God said, I'm setting you apart to be a, a holy people, right? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, that, that you're going to live by this set of laws that is different from everyone else, such that when people see you, they will see me, right? Such that when they see you living separate and holy in this special kind of way, that that would be a reflection of who I am. And then I will be your God, right? That's the promise. The, the Elijah represents the, the prophets, right? Which was this, I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to break it and turn it into a heart of flesh, right? That's what Jeremiah and Ezekiel both said. Elijah kind of represents He's the stand-in for all the prophets in the same way that Moses is the stand-in for the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But there's more to it than just that, right? Both Moses and Elijah spent time on mountains. If you're a studied Jewish boy standing with Jesus on a mountain and you see these two characters, having never seen a painting of them before or anything like that, you... You ask yourself, well, how do they know it was Moses and Elijah? And it's almost as though you would expect it to be Moses and Elijah, right? Both Moses and Elijah had moments on mountaintops with God. Of course, Moses at Mount Sinai, Elijah at Mount Carmel. But it goes even a little bit further than that. We've seen in the Gospels, all three of the synoptic Gospels that lead up to the moment of transfiguration. Before the moment of transfiguration, you will have seen Jesus calm the waves, very similar to how Moses parted the Red Sea, and you will have seen Jesus feed the 5,000, very similar to how Elijah fed the soldiers. And Elijah, incidentally, you might remember the story of the widow's flour and oil that never ran out. So Jesus has now performed miracles that we have seen that mimic Moses and Elijah's miracles. I think it's important for us to see Jesus in the transfiguration as a continuation of the promises of the Old Testament, as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Of course, you've also heard that phrase before, the law and the prophets, because for first century Jews, it was a way of talking about all of their holy scriptures leading up until that moment, right? When they said the law and the prophets, what they're talking about was all of their scriptures. The Jewish Bible is broken into three categories, and they are the law and the prophets, and then the third category is the writings, and that's where you find the poetry and Psalms and Proverbs and some things like that. Um, but saying law and the prophets was a way of, of saying scripture. It was a way of saying all of God's inspired word. So Jesus' transfiguration connects him to the law and the prophets. The next thing that you've probably already heard about the transfiguration is that Jesus' transfiguration bridges the gap between his baptism and resurrection. And it does this in a couple of different ways. First of all, the cloud descends on the mountain, right? 
Very similar imagery, by the way, to Moses and Elijah on the mountain and the glory of God comes down and covers the mountain so that the people can't see it. Earthquakes, you know, all kinds of things, lightning and thunder and things such as that. And the voice that comes out of the mountain says, or out of the cloud rather, says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Y'all recognize where that was said before? Almost verbatim, this is what was said when the dove descended at Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so what we see here is looking backwards to Jesus' baptism and then looking forward to the resurrection. And that's a little bit more explicit because Jesus says, don't tell anyone until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And this is not the first time that he had told the disciples that he would die and be raised from the dead, but it's obvious that they never really understood it, right? It's pretty clear from the accounts of the crucifixion and the resurrection that they were not expecting an empty tomb, right? The women did not go to confirm that it was empty. They went planning on adding spices to the body. So they didn't ever really get this. And so this transfiguration happens in the middle of two great moments. (laughs) How do you even say that, right? Obviously, two great moments in the life of Jesus. The baptism which kind of initiates his ministry in the world and the resurrection which I would say really initiates his ministry in the world. And that brings me to the word transfiguration itself. It's the word metamorphosis. And I'm a little frustrated that it is uh, translated transfiguration here because other places in Scripture it's translated transformation or transform. And it's not that one is better than the other. Both of those words essentially mean the same thing. But when they're used in different ways, talking about different things, for example, when we talk about Jesus going up on the mountain and being metamorphosed or whatever, and then we hear Paul later in Romans chapter 12 saying, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, we might think that those two things are not connected, but in the Greek, it's the same word, and they're very much connected. And that brings me to the last point here, that the transfiguration models our own transformation. And I don't know exactly how that works, but I know that it's the same word, and I think that it is the same intent behind it, that God can take mine and your broken hearts of stone and and turn them into hearts of flesh, that God can take our mistakes and turn them into something beautiful, right? That God can take death and turn it into life. This, this This is why we're here, right? That God can take me, broken me, and redeem my life, forgive me, and turn me into something beautiful for his kingdom's sake. I don't think it's an accident that Transfiguration Sunday happens right on the border between Epiphany and Lent. Um, I have said in this church before, I'm not sure if I've said it in this service, but one of the models that I think helps me understand how we grow, how we, how we are discipled, right? How we grow in our faith 
to be people who have the capacity to love God with our whole heart, strength, and mind come from two words that Jesus used a lot to open his sermons. One is katanoia, and it means stop, look, focus. It's usually translated consider. And it usually happens when they're walking down the road and he would say, hey guys, have you ever considered this fig tree? Have you considered the birds of the air or the lilies of the field? Have you ever stopped to reflect on them, to notice them, to see them really? We go through life and we often don't see, right? What's happening around us? We don't see the needs of people right in front of our face. We might drive all the way to church or all the way to work and barely even remember the drive because it's on autopilot the whole time. And so Jesus constantly was telling people to stop and see. Incidentally, that's what epiphany is. We just came out of the season of epiphany, right? Epiphany means to see. It means to see something that you didn't see before. The other word that Jesus uses a lot in his sermons was metanoia. It means bigger mind. So where katanoia means focus your mind, noia means mind, kata means focus, metanoia means bigger. So metamorphosis, for example, is a word that uses the word meta. Meta-narrative is a, is a word that describes the overarching narrative of a, of a story or something like that. So the idea that we stop and we focus our mind, in other words, to see, and then we allow our mind to grow as a result of it. We learn something and then we change and we move forward. This is what transformation is. The word metanoia almost always in scripture is translated repent. And that's what we do during the season of Lent. We repent. And so built into the Christian calendar is this cycle of seasons. And it doesn't stop with Epiphany and Lent. It goes on into the season of a Pentecost, excuse me, of Pentecost and then Advent. Of seeing, recognizing, reflecting, studying, growing, and then repenting, allowing our lives to be transformed and changed by the power of the gospel. This is how I think Jesus' transfiguration gives us at least some kind of model for our own uh, transformation. And that leads to the fourth point that is every bit as obvious as everything that I've ever said today. And that is that I want you to close your eyes for just a minute and imagine being there. It's not something that I can tell you. It's just the experience don't you wish that you were there to see it? Don't you wish that you had experienced the light, right? Clothes so white that they couldn't be bleached that white, if you know what I mean. The glory of God coming down in a cloud, Moses and Elijah somehow being there present, right? Of course Peter said, this is fantastic, God. We should build tents here and stay here forever. We should just live here from now on. This is amazing. This is where I want to spend the rest of my life. There is something to be said for experiencing the wonder of Christ in the transfiguration, the awe and beauty of this moment. I say that because we're about to receive communion. And anything that you do regularly has a tendency to become trivial. Mm. 
And we often in church, I think, are guilty of not pausing to experience the wonder in a moment. If there's anything that the transfiguration does for me, I think, it's not the, it's not the academic kind of tying Jesus to the law and the prophets and seeing how that affects our own lives. All of that is really important, I think. But stripped back and just experienced for what it is for just a minute reminds me to see the beauty in creation, right? To experience the way that God transforms my life on a daily basis if I would just pause, if I would stop and reflect and then allow God to grow my mind in whatever way that that looks, if I would just be willing to see God in the trees and the flowers and the butterflies and whatever else we happen to see out there and the people that we meet uh, on the road and in the store. So as we come to communion today, I want to invite you, as you're kneeling right here, to experience the awe of God's presence in the taste and smell and feel of the bread and the juice in your hands and on your mouth, that you would just, for just a moment, experience God's wonder in this place and in this time.